0: Welcome to OncoFarm Pod. I'm your host, John Bazar. Thanks again for joining us for our look back at um, the year 2017 in in OncoFarm. I want to thank you guys for listening. Uh, I ask you to do me a favor and go to the iTunes store and rate and review this podcast. Please not only rate, but leave a comment. Just let us know what you like, what you'd like to hear more of uh, to help us uh, figure out what to do uh, in 2018. Well, it can be said in lots of uh, aspects of our lives, but 2017, What a year! Uh, as far as uh, oncopharm, we had fifty-two approvals by the FDA. That includes new drugs. That includes uh, either new indications or regular approvals of old drugs, as well as diagnostic tests. That diagnostic tests. There were sixteen uh, new. Um, pharmaceutic, um, pharmaceuticals approved. Eight uh, of these were IBS. Uh, so TKIs are small molecule inhibitors. Nine if you include uh the FLT3 inhibitor for AML. Uh, one, don't know how to classify this, telotristat ethyl for carcinoid diarrhea. Um, of these 16, only one is what I would call traditional chemotherapy, and that's the liposomal doxorubicin and combination. There were two plain monoclonal antibodies, evalumab and dervalumab, both pdl one monoclonal antibodies, so immunotherapy. One armed monoclonal antibody, inotuzumab ozogamycin. Uh, inotuzumab is a CD22 targeting uh, monoclonal antibody. Uh, and that, this doesn't include gemtuzumab ozogamycin, which made it back on the market. And then uh, two CAR-T cell, or CAR-T immunotherapy approvals, so I'm going to go through uh, you know a little bit of uh, what I what I call a top five hashtag oncofarm of 2017. We're going to talk about uh, some of the specifics of some of these approvals a little bit later. I'm going to try and keep things brief on this 15 to 20 minute timeline that I think works best. So to start with, I'm going to go in order of what I think is most important. So number one is going to be car T cell therapy. Uh, so there were two of these that were approved, uh, as I said, and these are, I kind of pride myself as a pharmacist in being able to pronounce drug names, especially oncology drugs. But these CAR T-cell treatments are tough. Um, I'm going to give it a try. Tisagenlecleucel lic uh, or Kymriah, which quite honestly sounds like uh, a reality TV star. Uh, so I'm going to try and say tisagen lic And that was approved for refractory uh, B-cell ALL in August. And then we have Axicotoxic. Axycaptid, Axycaptid gene silolucel, or yes, CARTA, or yes, CARTA, uh, I don't know, sounds like bad jewelry or something, but that was approved for relapse refractory B-cell lymphoma, and and I've seen that abbreviated as axicel, gene silolucel. So, yeah, these are number one, I mean, wow, this, this um, both from a a scientific advance standpoint of the things that we can do uh, is amazing, as well as some of what we've seen from these drugs, as well as the price tag. I mean, these are notable for all kinds of reasons. Uh, Tisagin-Lucel is going to cost four hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Only one dose, though. We'll just call it a half a mil. We'll round up. Um, now, what's really interesting about this is that the payer so like CMS is only gonna pay and they've the, the, the company actually I guess started these this conversation to only pay if patients respond by the end of the month so it cost half a million dollars but you don't have to pay if you have some kind of response by the end of one month um, so I think that um, it's laudable that the company is is engaging in this value-based care I don't know how many me two monoclonal antibodies we need. They're going to cost ten grand um, a dose, but I is I do think it's worthwhile to pay for drugs that work better uh, compared to drugs that don't. So this is really the first um, example of value-based care, and I think that's a pro. Now the con is is response the best endpoint to do that? It's a good start, but um, if you're going to pay half a million dollars, I think you'd like. Uh, there to be cure and not just say a partial response and you can even talk about partial response at the end of a month Versus you know a complete response that happens later So I think it's a really interesting um, Discussion point for society uh, to talk about um, now these drugs I talked about the the scientific advance of, of creating these things um, So let's talk about that for a second. So you've got a patient with ALL lymphoma Basically, these patients have failed all lines of treatment. Nothing else has worked. All the chemo, uh, the cancer's uh, just grown through. So what they, what they do is uh, they hook them up to leukapheresis. They extract their white blood cells, take those T cells, prime them, and then basically bioengineer these T cells, put new DNA inside the T cell. So that T cell expresses uh, an antigen that is partial- uh, that is part um, made in the lab, so part you know not the host, and then also part the normal person. That's where the chimeric comes from in chimeric, um, and it's an antigen receptor. And in both cases of these drugs, it's specific to CD19, which is expressed on B cell malignancy, so B-ALL and then B cell uh, lymphomas. So then these T cells um, basically have been taken from the patient. They've been cooked up and trained to seek and destroy anything expressing CD19. They get put back into the patient after the patient receives some some chemotherapy, usually cytox, uh, cyclophosphamide and uh, fludarabine, which is very myelosup- or very immunosuppressive on top of being myelosuppressive to, to allow these T-cells the most kill-friendly environment to go after and really wreak havoc on these CD19-expressing uh, cancer cells. And it works pretty well i mean we've seen patients who have no options left who have a complete response and all their disease goes away and their disease stays away for years to the point that we're thinking these patients are cured and some of the first patients to receive this therapy are now out more than five years from receiving this suggesting that this can be curative and that's that's pretty amazing Um, it's very costly as we saw financially it's also costly from a toxicity standpoint so can cause severe cytokine release syndrome. these drugs are well-designed killers of anything expressing CD19. And those B cells have, whether the malignant ones have lots of cytokines and then they get released, can cause really bad hypotension, uh, leading to sepsis uh, and death. And we've learned uh, society that uh, this is associated with a big increase in IL-6 levels and that can be treated with an IL-6 monoclonal antibody antagonist uh, tocilizumab also causes really severe neurologic toxicity, um, and because these drugs kill anything with CD19, that includes uh, the native B-cell population. So these patients can have B-cell aplasia as well as hypogammaglobulinemia, requiring long-term IVIG treatment to maintain their immunoglobulin levels. Now, I mentioned some of these early patients to receive this type of therapy uh, we think are cured. And in some of those patients, their B-cell population has returned two to three years after treatment without their disease coming back. So that's certainly promising. Uh, If these toxicities sound very challenging to manage, uh, you're right. And for that reason, there is a REMS, or risk um, evaluation and mitigation strategy for this drug, whereby the drug company, so there are two companies here, Uh, or or the these two products the drug company for these products have to evaluate your facility they have to give you an education session and determine if you have the ability to provide uh, this drug Uh, so that's good that's good to ensure uh, help to ensure that the drug is given safely and that everyone is trained to take care of these patients because as I think of CAR T therapy I'm not sure that it is as involved or patients receiving this has a has a high, has as high-level acuity as, say, an allogeneic stem cell transplant patient, but they're probably more acutely ill after receiving this than an uh, autologous stem cell transplant. So there certainly should be uh, extra training for these patients, for the clinicians taking care of them. Uh, and I mentioned that these patients have to be hooked up to leukophoresis. We don't have leukophoresis uh, at our uh, locally, uh, where I practice. So those patients would have to go four hours away, probably. Um, so there are issues for rural areas. There are issues in the scalability of this technology and getting it uh, to, to the masses, so to speak. Luckily, these indications right now are for pretty, uh, pretty rare individuals, especially ALL. Um, so we'll see how this plays out in the future and how many people are able to receive this treatment. But certainly, it's very exciting and has... Uh, you know, gives a, a big role for oncology pharmacists to help take care of these patients because of all all the logistic issues as well as just the the drug therapy toxicity issues that go along with this. And there's a whole lot more about CAR T therapy than I really can get into right now. But this is the number one uh, you know oncopharm advance of 2017 in my opinion. And the next thing I'm going to talk about are biosimilars. Uh, so we we've had you know the biosimilar, Phil on the market, but now we have biosimilars for Bevacizumab, or Bevacizumab-AWWB, and more recently uh, Trastuzumab-DKST. So biosimilars are uh, highly similar entities to the, the reference product, in this case Bevacizumab and Trastuzumab. So they're not generic, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're interchangeable so uh, I'm trying to think of a good analogy to explain this to students and the, the best thing that I can kind of come up with is if you have uh, uh, you know a red flower and you create uh, a red flower a red flower that is exactly the same in what it looks like and how it smells and how it feels and everything on the inside of the red flower is the same that to me is brand versus generic a uh, biosimilar is like a float in the Rose Bowl parade and somebody's trying to recreate that float exactly from um, from the standard of their reference product and uh, you know they might get the, the general picture exactly right and you can tell exactly what it is and it behaves the same way it, it produces the same amounts of ooze and ahs from the crowd and all those flowers are the exact same maybe but there might be a slight difference in shade. So, so the biosimilars essentially, uh, in this case, they have the same activity against VEGF and HERD2, respectively. Uh, they, we, uh, we know that they're, based on uh, the more rigorous testing that goes in for biosimilars, they're less likely to be, uh, we feel good about their immunogenicity and not causing immune reactions to these drugs uh, to inactivate the product. And uh, we think they're going to work just as well in the long term. And because uh, there's now competition, they're going to be cheaper. So we have these cheaper biosimilars, which hopefully can help keep the cost of cancer therapy down. And certainly are going to be keeping pharmacy and therapeutics or P&T committees busy as more and more of these make it to the market. Uh, Number three, uh, OncoPharm Advance of 2017. I'm going to say AML treatments. Uh, When I was coming out of residency um, eight. Nine years ago, we had 7 plus 3 for AML. And 30 years ago, they had 7 plus 3. And there was a debate of which anthracycline to use, and not a whole lot uh, had changed in those 30 years. And then suddenly somebody decided, let's not just increase the dose of anthracycline a little bit, let's double it. And that was the first big advance, was this high dose, 90 milligram per meter squared dose of donorubicin. Well, this year, uh, we had four FDA approvals for AML. We had inacidinib, which is an isocytrate dehydrogenase or IDH2 uh, inhibitor. So this is only approved for AML with an IDH2 mutation. Uh, and the big toxicity to remember for this one is differentiation syndrome. So same sort of uh, care and monitoring required of patients receiving inacidinib as your APL patients receiving arsenic or atra. So monitoring weight, monitoring pulmonary status, having that dex 10 milligrams IVQ12 ready to bring out Uh, We have mitostarin. Uh, It's a TKI for FLT3 mutation AML, which we know has a poorer prognosis than other AML. Uh, Gemtuzumab ozogamycin makes it back on the market. Those of you who listened to the last podcast about gefitinib's role to the market, off the market, and back on might see some similarities in gemtuzumab, maybe some differences as well. Uh, As I recall, the original gemtuzumab ozogamycin dose was 9 mg per kg. Uh, this has a couple different indications and approval. So one is three mgs per kg with chemo up front, and then six mgs per kg as a single agent. And I think there's also a, a slightly different regimen for a relapsed refractory AML. So gemtuzumab is a monoclonal antibody against CD33, and ozogamycin is attached to it. It's a calicheamicin derivative that's uh, that's toxic, and it gets internalized because of that binding to CD33 that, that hopefully just targets it to uh, aml cells now we know this doesn't happen because that ozogamycin uh, if it falls off can cause uh, liver disease uh, and this was a big problem before with venoocclusive disease are now called sinusoidal obstructive syndrome uh, which was one of the reasons it got removed from the market along with some questions about efficacy which um, at lower doses uh, they seem to have found the right mix of efficacy and toxicity and then finally so that's three new approvals Um, for AML before I get to the fourth one which is the liposomal donarubicin cytarabine and it's designed to deliver a 1 to 5 molar concentration of donarubicin cytarabine into the AML cells. Uh, It's been um, studied for for several years and if you look in the literature you'll see it called CPX351. Uh, It's approved for treatment related AML, so AML that was caused by prior treatment with say an alkylating agent or etoposide in the past or MDS-related AML, both of these AMLs have a poorer prognosis than de novo AML. And it's a 90-minute infusion on days 1, 3, and 5, and is basically meant to to replicate 7 plus 3. So we went 30 years with really no big changes in AML outside a uh, transplant, and then... We get 90 mgs per kg of donorucin. A few years later, we get four new approvals for AML. And you can talk about Jim 2s not being a new drug. I, I understand that. Uh, the fourth approval, or the fourth thing I'm going to talk about, is just the continuing march of immunotherapy. Now, we had a couple pdl one monoclonal antibodies approved this year, Vellumab and Dervalumab. Um... Nothing terribly uh, interesting to talk about with those. We're getting to the point with these uh, PD-1 and PDL one monoclonal antibodies that questions are coming up at p committees of, uh, essentially, they sound like, how many ACE inhibitors do we need? How many beta blockers? How many statins do we need? And uh, I get that question, but I think these drugs have been studied in different disease states, and until more of them are out and we figure out, are there treatment differences? Are there toxicity differences? That's going to take a while to figure out. So for now, we... We still need them. I think the bigger question, the more interesting discussion point with immunotherapy is what is the role of pd one pdl one testing? Um, there seems to be discrepancies and discordance depending on what you test and in what disease state you test and uh, in which disease state makes sense because these um, diseases all have slightly different biology. Although uh, the immunotherapy uh, we know works best in, in disease of high mutational with a high mutation index, so these are diseases basically caused by smoking or or radiation. So you're talking melanoma, your lung cancers, bladder cancers, kidney cancers, head and neck cancers, lung cancers, things caused by smoking. Um, but in some diseases and with some drugs, PD-1 expression makes sense uh, or predicts response. In others, pdl one does, some it's a proportion score. But there seems to be no strong trend one way or the other. Uh, and this, this may be the disease states are different. It may be a different drug activity and effectiveness. It may be a difference in uh, or a deficiency in the reproducibility of the science of testing for pd one pdl one and proportion score. Uh, and maybe there's some differences in labs um, across the country and how good they are at testing this and analyzing that. So I think we're still in the infancy of figuring out the best role of immunotherapy. But, but clearly the commercials are out there on uh, the nightly news, and it's something that we're going to see more and more of, and, and we're getting pretty good at taking care of patients with these drugs and their toxicities. Uh, number five, uh, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, released uh, an update to their anti-medic guidelines, and this was uh, a, re- a kind of a sizable update in what's included. So I'm going to hit kind of three... Three things that I think are worth noting if you haven't read that ASCO update. One, uh, olanzapine is recommended for high-risk patients. So that's anybody receiving, say, a a highly emetogenic uh, regimen that would include our cisplatin-based regimens as well as AC. Now the guidelines have separated out how they, uh, they kind of have high A and high B. High A would be your cisplatin-containing regimens, high B would be your AC regimens. But olanzapine is recommended for all those so kind of the standard antimetic cocktail for any highly emetogenic regimen is going to have four drugs. It's going to have a 5-HT3 antagonist, dexamethasone, a neurokinin-1 antagonist like aprepitant or fosaprepidant, and olanzapine based on the guidelines. Um, so this is something that you will be seeing in your practices most likely uh, soon if you haven't already. I mentioned that the high-risk patients, they, they split apart to cisplatin-containing regimens or decarbazine regimens and then AC regimens. There is now, it's now recommended that dexamethasone is only given on day one for patients receiving AC, and this is good because there can be less steroid, and some physicians and oncologists are very worried about steroids, although steroids are really great antiemetics. Um, so locally, we've seen some, uh, some differences in prescribers and, and how accepting they are of going away from that dexmedazone on days 2, 3, and 4 because it is so good at preventing delayed nausea and vomiting. Um, so now that is an option just to do dex on day 1 for your AC patients. And then finally, uh, neurokinin 1 antagonists are recommended for patients receiving carboplatin with uh, doses that are uh, equal to or greater than an AUC of 4. Um, so all those lung cancer patients receiving, uh, carbo, all those, you know, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer patients receiving carbo AUC 5 or 6 are candidates now, um, based on the ASCO guidelines for, for a neurokina 1 antagonist. So those are five of the big Oncopharm, um, advances or notable achievements this year. Uh, and I think it's been, a, you know, a good year for, uh, for oncofarm. There's a lot going on. And, uh, you know what? I'm gonna throw in a sixth. And I'm gonna talk about this, this next-gen sequencing that's been approved by the FDA, which tests for, uh, I think it's like 300 genetic mutations um, in a variety of solid tumors. Uh, and what this is gonna do is, so say you have your metastatic colon pancreatic lung patient who's exhausted all options. Now they can ha- their oncologist can do this, uh, this next-gen sequencing test um, Praxis Extended RAS panel. And, you know, it's going to identify any mutations. And if those mutations have a matching drug, then it might be possible that that tyrosine kinase inhibitor gets used for that patient. And we don't necessarily know if that mutation is a driver mutation or a passenger mutation. So, driver mutations would be mutations that drive or cause the growth of the cancer passenger mutations are mutations that are there that just happen to be there they're just along for the ride that's why they're called passenger mutations Uh, at this point we don't know that this next-gen sequencing uh, is helpful uh, from a large-scale so um, I'm sure that patients will benefit I'm also uh, I also think it's likely that patients will receive drugs that are not going to work because, not because the drug doesn't work at that mutation, but because that mutation is not a driver mutation, those cancers. And there's just not enough out there about, one, the reproducibility of this science, I think, uh, and how well this practice. So testing for all these mutations and then doing that are going to work without uh, you know phase three clinical trials. And there's been some, some critique of this approval out there in the, uh, the Twitterverse. But I think it's notable because um, for those of you who work a lot with patients taking oral, uh, oral oncolytics or oral anti-cancer drugs like I do, I think we're gonna see more and more patients coming into our practices for education and counseling, receiving drugs um, for uh, disease states um, with a matching drug, where there isn't a lot of even phase two data. And I think we may see that more and more going forward. And I think that's notable uh, for 2018 and beyond. Well, thank you all for listening. I hope you guys uh, had a great 2017. Have a great new year and holiday season. And have a great 2018. Happy holidays. Happy new year.